So over the last several weeks, you've been looking at and we've been looking at uh, the ministry of Jesus, and specifically, we've been looking at the time that he's been in Galilee. So two weeks ago, if you remember, Pastor Tim spoke about a miracle where Jesus healed a blind man. He healed a blind man, and he actually did it in two stages. So he spit into the blind man's eyes. And the man began to see, and he said, I see men like trees walking. And then he did the complete miracle and healed him uh, completely. So it was kind of an odd miracle. And then this week, we're going to be looking at, as we prepare to wrap up this series, we're going to be looking at another peculiar and odd miracle that is a lot of fun. And I'm excited to be able to preach on this passage. And what we're looking at tonight is where Jesus instructed Peter to pull a coin from a fish mouth. And so as we read through the book of Matthew, we learn that he intended uh, to reveal to both the Jewish people and the Gentiles, he was trying to reveal to them who Jesus was, the person of Jesus. He was trying to reveal to them that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, that he was the Savior. And this particular account sticks with Matthew's theme and it helps reveal the identity of who Jesus really is, who the person of Jesus is. Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, and he has come to pay the ransom or the price for our sins. So that's where we're going to be tonight and looking at tonight. Let's read Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. It says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, as we read this passage, at first glance, uh, it would be really easy for us to read this and just to continue on in our devotions. It'd be easy for us to look at this passage, not to take it very seriously, think to ourselves, that's interesting, that's a pretty cool story, that's a pretty neat miracle, but not to think about it in any uh, real depth or not to look into what's really taking place here, but there's something incredible happening, and if you would take a second look with me, and if we look at this passage and dive in a little deeper, we'll see something pretty incredible. Matthew thought it was important to record this, important enough to put it in the Bible as it was added to the, uh, the scriptures, and so I think it deserves our attention. So to catch us up to speed, recently as you look back through the previous chapters, you'll see that Peter, James, and John uh, we're on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Jesus was transfigured in front of their eyes. They were able to see who Jesus was, that he was the son of the living God. So they were able to see Jesus transfigured. They saw Jesus heal a boy with a demon. And soon after that, he told them that he would be delivered into the hands of men, that he'd be turned over, arrested, that he would be crucified, and that three days later, he would rise Again, 
So at this point in the story, the person of Jesus is securely fixed in the mind of the disciples and in our minds as those who are reading the stories. We begin to get a sense of who Jesus really is. But as we are about to see yet again in this story, in this passage, he's once again going to reveal his true identity, that he's more than just a man, but that he's the Messiah, that he is the Savior, that he is the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh. So first we recognize that Jesus and the disciples arrive in Capernaum, which is also known as Jesus' own city. This is where Jesus decided to launch his ministry, and here he finds himself again towards the end of his ministry and towards the end of his time here with the disciples. This also happens to be Peter's hometown, which is likely why as we continue to read this passage, it mainly revolves around Jesus, Peter, and these two tax collectors. Those are the main characters here in this story. The other disciples are off doing other disciple stuff. So it's also possible that because it was their hometown, that the tax collectors would have recognized both Peter and Jesus. And so being from the area, these tax collectors would have recognized them and would have been, it would have been easier for these tax collectors to target them, to, to point them out. Another important detail is that these tax collectors are collecting two drachma. What is that? At first, it may seem similar to another passage of scripture that we read in Mark chapter 12, where there are religious leaders who were actually trying to trick Jesus. They were trying to trap Jesus and, and get him arrested. They were trying to trick him uh, because they were asking Jesus if they should pay taxes to Rome, to which Jesus responds, if you remember, to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, or give to the government what belongs to the government. You see, the Jewish people hated Rome for oppressing them, but if Jesus would have fallen for the trap and told them not to pay taxes to Rome, he would have been guilty of treason, they would have arrested him, and possibly had him killed before his time. And so he was very wise in how he interacted with them, and he answered them appropriately. However, that's not what's happening here in this passage. These two men are collecting a tax in a Jewish form of currency, two drachma, which if we look into it, we actually find they are collecting what is known as the temple tax. The temple tax, and this is where I want to focus our attention for just a moment. The temple tax, and it represents what we're about to find out, is that Jesus is moving beyond what used to be in the past, and he's moving into something new. It's out with the old and in with the new. So it says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? The temple tax. What is the temple tax? Well, we actually find out what the temple tax is back in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 13. So I'm going to go ahead and read that for you, and I think it will be on the screen for you as well. But it says in Exodus chapter 30, and this is where we get a little bit of an idea of what's really happening in this passage. It's it's awesome. The Word of God is just so incredible. And as we put these things together, we're going to see the person of Jesus. It says, The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, and here it says something really important, 
Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. So here we get a picture of what the temple tax is. And initially when the temple tax was established, it was intended to be a ransom for the life of the Israelites. They gave a temple tax as a ransom for their lives. And it was roughly equivalent to about two days worth of wages. And it, it went to the upkeep of the temple. And as you know, the temple is central uh, to the Jewish faith, the Jewish believers. It was central to the Jewish people, much like the church is central to us as New Testament believers. However, the difference is, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the church isn't a place as much as it is a people, right? We are the church, and so sometimes we get stuck thinking about the church as a geographical location, as opposed to recognizing that you and I are the church, but the temple was central to the Jewish people. And it's likely that the religious leaders and teachers at that time weren't required to have to pay the temple tax, which goes to show you what they thought of Peter's teacher, that they must not have thought of him as being a teacher or a rabbi or legitimate. They must not have thought of him as being somebody who was not having to pay the temple tax. And also for Jesus not to pay the tax, it would reveal what his thoughts were of the temple. If Jesus didn't pay the temple tax, what does that mean about his thoughts of the temple? He must not think uh, very much of the temple, and the temple was critical to their religion. It was critical and essential, essential to, to who they were as a people. It represented the ability to have your sins atoned for. You would go to the temple, there would be a sacrifice made there for atoning for your sins. And so the temple was central to the Jewish people. And if Jesus wouldn't pay that tax, what does that mean he thinks of the temple? Well, we get a couple ideas of what Jesus thinks of the temple throughout the New Testament. So Jesus' thoughts on the temple, we can see in John chapter 2, verse 19. I believe it's on the screen for you there. It says that Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Obviously, Jesus isn't talking about the physical temple. He's talking about his body, that when he's crucified, three days later, he will rise again. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13 says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So obviously Jesus didn't approve of what was taking place in the temple. And then we also read in Matthew chapter 12, 6, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Once again, Jesus was talking about himself, about himself. Jesus knew and understood that the temple wasn't the end game for believers. As much as they felt like the temple was central to their faith and their beliefs, the temple was only an illustration of, of who was to come. It was all supposed to point to 
the Messiah. It was all supposed to point to the Savior. It was supposed to point to the one who would come back again. They would be able to recognize who he was, and they would recognize that he was the Savior and the one who would atone for their sins. And Jesus knew that the temple wasn't God's end game. God's desire for us was to become the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, that one day after Jesus, right, would rise again, he would go back to be seated at the right hand of the Father, and then he would send the helper, and then God would once again, just like in the Garden of Eden, would dwell with his people. He would dwell in his people, and this was always God's design. This was always God's desire was to dwell with his people, not that his presence would be limited to a, a location, but that we would be carriers of his presence everywhere that we go. God's presence wasn't limited to the temple. Jesus was trying to help them get past the temple to understand that something better has come, that we have the ability to dwell and to live uh, with God. That was God's desire from the very beginning. So imagine with me the embarrassment, if they could have recognized what was happening, of these two tax collectors if only they would have recognized who was standing in front of them. The very one that they were waiting for. The one who came to take away the sins of the world. He was the fulfillment of the temple and of the whole law standing in front of them. And they are asking him to pay a half shekel as a ransom for his life. Which if you think about it is a small price to pay if you consider that in just a few days he was about to give his life as a ransom for them, as a ransom for us, which is an even greater price, but for the sins of the world Christ had come to atone for and to pay not just a half shekel, not just two days wages, but he was gonna pay for our eternity this debt that we could not pay on our own. They're asking the savior of the world to pay a half shekel to atone for his sins when in just a few days he was about to atone for all of their sins if they were to believe. If we're not cautious, we can be like these two tax collectors. We can fall more in love with our own religious system that we're a part of and miss out on the one that we came here to worship. We can fall more in love with the idea of church. We can fall in love with the different aspects of church. We can fall in love with coming to church, but forget that we are a part of church, and Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We can get more caught up in our own religion, and we can forget all about Jesus. We can miss the Savior of the world, even when he's standing right in front of us. So how does Peter respond to these men's questioning uh, of Jesus, of their teacher? So they ask him, right? They ask Peter, doesn't your teacher pay the tax? Well, how does Peter respond? And that's where we move into this next part where we move out with the old and now in with the new and we learn about our freedom in Christ. And so Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons 
are free. I love Peter's response. It's almost like he doesn't know actually how to answer the question. He says, yes, yes, he pays it, or yes, he doesn't pay it. Peter pauses for a second. Let me get back to you on that one, right? And so he steps into the house there, and Jesus, obviously with an earshot, hearing what's happening, answers Peter right from the beginning, and Jesus uses this as a teaching moment, You know I had to get a Chick-fil-A reference in here for you. I love teaching moments. There have been many moments where I would mess up at Chick-fil-A, and then they would immediately respond and say, this is a teaching moment. That's much of my life. Much of my life is teaching moments. Well, here is a teaching moment uh, for Peter. Jesus essentially asks, and I'm paraphrasing here, do kings take tax from their children? Well, that wouldn't make much sense, would it? I mean, since taxes go to taking care of the king and the king's family, it would be kind of redundant for the king to tax his own children. But there are two incredible truths that we learn uh, and are being communicated here to Peter and to you and I as well. First, we are children of the king. And secondly, we've been paid for. Our way has been paid First, let's talk about what it means to be a child of the king. This is no understatement. I hope you understand that when I talk about us being children of the king. I'm not talking about an earthly kingdom. I'm talking about a heavenly kingdom. You and I, as believers, are children of the God of the universe. We are children of the king. This was God's desire from the very beginning, the God of the universe, right? Out of the desire of his heart, out of his desire to dwell with us, put a plan in motion from before the beginning of time to send his son to pay the temple tax, to pay the ransom for our lives, and to adopt us as children, not just one of his many children, but as co-heirs with Christ, you are treated as a firstborn son or daughter of the king. We are children of the king. Romans 8, 15 through 17 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You and I are children of the King. How awesome is that? Secondly, we are paid for. We are free. This is not free in the sense that we are finally free to justify the behaviors and actions that we wish to get away with. I see this a lot in mature Christians, right? We come to Christ, we, we live for him, we, we, we do everything we feel like we need to do to make sure our lives are right with God, and then we live for God for a little while, and we slowly introduce previous behaviors, and then we tell ourselves that, I'm free, 
I'm free to do as I please. I'm free to do what makes me happy. I'm, I'm mature enough to allow these sorts of behaviors in my life, and you can kind of fill in uh, the gaps. This is not free to justify our own actions, our own desires, uh, or our own behaviors, but we are free to live for God, free in the sense that our debt has been paid for. Jesus has paid the ransom for our lives, and as Christians, we love this idea of Christian freedom, don't we? We love to see how much we can get away with. We love to see how far we can push it. We love to see how close we can get to the line. So we live in a culture where our personal freedoms and rights are of highest priority, but in Christ, we have not been set free to take advantage of our freedoms but we've been set free for the purpose of serving others. That is what freedom is all about. We recognize the freedom from the sins uh, that we've committed. We, 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 we recognize the freedom from our past mistakes. We recognize the freedom from shame and from guilt. We recognize the freedom from having to try and be good enough and to save ourselves. We are free from that entire old way of doing things where we had to pay our own way and pay a ransom for our own lives. We're free from that. And now we are free to live for God. We're free to live according to his word. We're free to live godly and holy and righteous lives. God says, be holy as I am holy, right? That's what we're free to. We're free uh, to serve. And I find that if that bothers us, it's a, I'm afraid it's because we don't realize how much we've really been forgiven. But I can assure you, I can assure you that it is a whole lot more than a half shekel. It's a whole lot more than two days worth of wages that you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven for a lifetime of sin and guilt and shame, and you've been spared an eternity of separation from God. You've been set free to serve, and you've been set free to love others as God has loved you. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then Christ perfectly exemplifies this for us in his response to these two tax collectors. And here's where things get a little exciting. This is where the miracle takes place. This is where Jesus says not to give offense. So this is the application of out with the old, in with the new. This is how we do this. This is the application. He says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. In this moment, as Jesus performs this miracle, he once again reveals his true identity. But he does so with incredible humility, an attempt for these two tax collectors to see who he is, to see who it is that's standing right in front of them. You know, the most unique aspect about uh, this miracle isn't that Jesus tells Peter to pull a coin from the fish's mouth, but if you read it, you'll realize that the miracle is actually assumed. Nowhere does it say that it actually happened. It just says that Jesus told Peter to do this, and then we assume that it happened. Nowhere does it actually tell us that it happened, but it leaves us with this cliffhanger, and we're left to fill in the gaps. 
Matthew did that on purpose. Like I said at the beginning, Jesus had been transfigured. He'd healed a boy with a demon. He revealed God's ultimate purpose through his death and resurrection. And now we read about this temple tax and we understand that Jesus is the one who paid it all and came to complete the work of the temple. And now we can be certain of Jesus' identity. But Matthew, I love this, in a clever way, leads us along in this story to cause us as the readers to fill in the gaps so that we might come to a place of believing that Jesus really is the Messiah. We assume that the miracle was completed because we were led to believe in the person of Jesus. The miracle is assumed. Think about it though. Who has this sort of power? To know that someone somewhere at some point dropped a coin into the water which would be swallowed by a random fish. And that when Peter caught it, it would be right where it needed to be at the very moment it needed to be there, at that precise moment, so that it was the first fish that he caught, and that the coin in the mouth of the fish would total the exact amount needed to pay for both Peter and Jesus. It was a half shekel. There was a full shekel in the mouth of the fish that perfectly paid the temple tax for the both of them. There is only one person with this sort of knowledge and power. That person would have to be God. God in the flesh, Jesus, our Savior, the one who came to pay our ransom, the one who came to atone for our sins, the one who came to set us free. So as I wrap up here and as we close uh, together, just a couple more thoughts and then I will pray with you. But as we think about this story here, this incredible story, this incredible miracle, we see that the temple tax is a doing away with the old. It's an out with an old. And the caution to us is that we need to be aware of how religion can blind us to the person of Jesus. That we can fall more in love with trying to do good works, right? Trying to be good enough to try and work the system in a way that can atone for our own sins, but we recognize that a temple tax doesn't atone for our sins, that our measly two days worth of work, and we try every day, don't we? We try every day to be good enough. We work hard every day to try and do this on our own and realizing that we never will be. But our way of doing this sometimes, our old way of doing it, the way that we try and do it in our own ability can actually cause us to be blind to the person of Jesus when he's standing right in front of us. These men believe that the system that they were following was leading them to God, but it actually got in the way of them seeing God when he was standing in front of them. So the temple tax is paid for out with the old, and there's a new way in with the new. The sons are free our freedom is more about having our debt paid than it is justifying our actions, right? Like if I got my student loans paid for, I wouldn't go out and go back into debt, right? I would be thankful for the freedom that I have. That, that's, I would be free from my debt. I wouldn't go right back into debt. That would make no sense. 
So if we are free from the sin and shame that we once committed, why would we go back to justifying now the sins that we commit uh, all because we feel like we have this sense of Christian freedom? We're free for the purpose of loving and serving others, not so we can serve ourselves. How do we do that? We do that by not giving offense, right? We do that by not misusing our freedom, but we do it by serving others so that they might see who the person of Jesus is. Our freedom is so that we can help others to see Jesus and that they might also be free as well. Amen?